0: And welcome to the alternate timeline. Um, today we are talking about the flash-forward episode, Double Trouble, among other things. So yeah, let's start there. Um, this episode had a lot more sources, more experts, more voices in it than we usually include. Um, and I'll just tell you kind of the the behind-the-scenes secret reason why that is. So um, Julia and I wound up pushing the episode that was going to go this week back one slot just because we didn't quite have the right experts. Um, And so we had to kind of move quickly and try to get things lined up for this one, which means that um, I sent out a ton of email requests for experts and sources because I usually only get about 50% of the people that I email come back to me and say like, yes, especially when it's really short notice. But of course, this time, they all got back to me right away and were like, yes, I want to be on the show. Very exciting. So that's great. Um, But it also means that you heard from six people in this episode instead of the normal three or four. Um, But they were all great. And I'm really glad they all kind of came on the show. Um, A couple of things that we didn't get into on this episode, just for time Reasons. And the first is the origin of digital twins as a concept, right? We sort of talked about this on the episode. It's sort of become a buzzword, but I think the history is actually kind of interesting. So let's talk about it a little bit. The actual term digital twin can be traced pretty clearly to 2002. Most people sort of point to a presentation at the University of Michigan. There was a conference there, and this guy named Michael Greaves, who is from the Florida Institute of Technology, used the phrase to talk about something called product lifecycle management. Um, It's kind of wonky, but pretty much everybody credits Greaves for this term. Although here and there, you will sometimes see people name John Vickers from NASA as the person who who coined that term also in 2002. Um, But 2002 is definitely the year probably Michael Greaves. He's kind of the main guy everyone talks about. But... The idea, the actual concept of a digital twin, who came up with that? That's a little bit murkier, right? The actual name, digital twin, as what we call it, that's pretty clear. Um, But the concept is obviously older. And some people actually point to NASA as being the first to really implement the idea of a digital twin during the 1960s. You know, they didn't call it that at the time. But um, as they were working on sending people into space, NASA built a bunch of test modules and simulations for what might happen and obviously what might go wrong. Now for a digital twin to actually be a digital twin, it can't just be a theoretical model or a simulation of what might happen, right? The whole point is that it has to actually be taking data from the actual thing and sort of updating that way. But NASA also did kind of do that at one point. So during the Apollo 13 mission, April 1970, you probably know about this, something went pretty badly wrong. This is where the famous line, Houston, we have a problem comes in. So inside this little tiny capsule, the three astronauts in Apollo 13 suddenly heard what they called sort of a bang, wump, shudder, and it shook the spacecraft, and one of the astronauts said they saw the hull of the craft actually physically flex, which is obviously Terrifying when you're trying to go to space or are in space. Um, And within seconds, right, the cabin is like full of lights, all the alarms are going off, everything, it's like very clearly something bad has happened, right? Danger, 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 danger. Um, The astronauts did not know at the time, but what had happened was an explosion in the oxygen tank had not only critically damaged their main engine, but also kind of ruptured their oxygen supply. So that meant that their oxygen was leaking into space which is obviously bad. So on the ground, NASA was trying to figure out what to do, what happened, and sort of what the right course of action is here. Um... And one of the tools that they wound up using was essentially a digital twin of Apollo 13, which was built down on Earth. So they had this model of Apollo 13. um, But what they did was they actually took the data coming from the actual Apollo 13 out in space. They fed it into the model of the version that they had on Earth. And they actually tested a bunch of stuff from you know, of of possibilities, right? They were able to test possible solutions there on the ground for what to do on this digital twin, sort of adding all the data in from the actual craft itself. So that is kind of what some people point to as one of the first like big examples of this idea. And, you know, like you probably know that Apollo 13 wound up being fine. Um, That's not really a spoiler at this point. Um, And some people, some historians, some sort of space people argue that things went okay, and they were able to kind of salvage the mission and keep everybody safe, because they had this kind of like proto digital twin setup many, many years before the term digital twin would show up. So that is just some fun digital twin prehistory for you. Um, A couple of other interesting things that came up in our research um, that we didn't include is about sort of the medical side of digital twins. So in fact-checking, Julia found this really interesting paper about blood pressure. So um, you know how you go into the doctor's office and they pretty much always check your blood pressure. Um, Well, it turns out the actual utility of blood pressure as an indicator of health is somewhat contested. Um, For some people with certain conditions, it's definitely something important to track, but for a lot of people research suggests that there's not like a really clear correlation between blood pressure and a lot of other things like health generally or other kinds of things you might look at. Um, Julia also found this really interesting paper from 2014 called why are doctors still measuring blood pressure question mark which points out that several studies have found a very real difference between doctor and nurse obtained blood pressures. So if a nurse takes your blood pressure versus if a doctor takes your blood pressure on the same day in the same place you might get different numbers depending on who takes that reading and the theory behind why this is is that doctors elicit something called the white coat effect this has been studied in a lot of different places and it's this idea that when people see a doctor right with the white coat they become a little bit more alert and they have kind of a little bit of a fight or flight response which of course has an impact on blood pressure so which one of those is like the real blood pressure what do you do when you have these different numbers in the same place between two different people taking it. The paper doesn't really come to any big conclusions about like what to do or what should happen, but the authors do say, quote, it remains unclear whether patients on medication should be monitored by office blood pressures with their potential for error and inconsistency or by home monitoring, right? Is it better to monitor at home? Is it better to monitor in an office? It's actually still kind of unclear based on the research, which I think is super interesting. The other medical thing, other medical related thing I wanted to add is something from Dr. Robin Zabrowski, who you heard on the episode talking about sort of like whether the machine metaphor is the right one for humans and kind of why it's not. But one thing I didn't include in the episode that we did talk about is what she thinks the right metaphor is. So here is her answer to that question.
1: It's such a good question. Um, so as far as like the brain goes, the, and I think this is also somewhat true of body in general, uh, but like brain has always been analogized to whatever the hottest technology is at the moment. So um, of course, right now brains are computers, but they're also like, of course, these very complicated computers because now that we have- so our, Right, right. We have like artificial neural nets and we're like, this is exactly what the brain is. But before there were computers, the brain was a switchboard like we were like telephone switchboards explained how the brain worked and and so just historically every single best technology was our metaphor um and and i have a really unsatisfying answer to this which is that the um that the metaphor i actually like best is um is probably merlo ponti's discussion of like the flesh of the world so it's not so much an answer to the way human bodies should be made sense of but a way to make sense of our relationship to the environment because bodies are always embedded in an environment Um, and and he talks about this this notion of the flesh of the world and that to me captures the messiness right of our relationship with the the environment that we're in Um, and it's like the least satisfying metaphor ever because because again, it just raises more questions than it answers. But I love it because it, it raises the right questions. Um, and it raises the questions about all of the stuff in the world that's not yet understood or quantified. Stuff that maybe we can't dilute down to particles and bouncing and things like that. that it, it, it just really shows us that we've been thinking about humans embedded in worlds in kind of the wrong way. Um, And so that's my favorite metaphor of that relationship. But as far as like the way to make sense of the body in a nice clean metaphor, I don't have a good one. I think that they're all fairly unsatisfying.
0: And then the last thing that I will say about this particular episode is that there is definitely a ton of science fiction that talks about this idea that I didn't mention in the episode. So a couple of you have noted that there's a book called Kiln People by David Brin. There's also a Paul Rudd movie called Living With Myself. There's a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of science fiction, a bunch of stuff out there that thinks about this idea. Um I didn't mention them. I did mention the Black Mirror episode because if I, if I ever do anything that Black Mirror has done and I don't mention it, I get like a thousand emails from people being like, do you know there's a Black Mirror episode? Um, which like, yes, I, I do. I've seen them all. I've seen all the Black Mirror episodes. Um... And, uh, but yeah, I always kind of like wonder about how much to include like a section in the episode being like, here's all the science fiction that talks about this. And I often don't because like, it's not that useful to a listener, like in terms of information. But, um, every time I don't mention something, I get sort of an email from someone being like, did you know, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes I didn't know. Right. And that's, I, I don't say this to say like, don't email me about those things. Cause that's not what I'm saying. It's not annoying or anything. Um, Okay, last thing is oh as always a secret. Um, so I have two actually for you this this week. I should probably like save one and meter it out, but um, because sometimes some weeks I can't think of any secrets. Um, two secrets. Number one is you probably heard me talk about this on another um, of these bonus podcasts, but um, I got a kiln which I'm very excited about, and today the electrician came by um, and installed the correct kind of plug with the right amount of amperage and the right amount of um, capacity uh, to be able to plug it in and we plugged it in and we tested it and it seems to work. So I'm going to do my first official test firing soon. I will be sure to document all of it on the Instagram. Um, and the second little secret is that right before quarantine started, right before everything like really just like kind of went to hell and it got really bad with the pandemic here in the United States and where I am in Berkeley, um, literally the week before I had two big sessions booked with my tattoo artist to sort of finish my sleeve. I have like a, my left arm is like a proto beginning half sleeve. Um, I had these two sessions. We were going to finish it. I was super excited. And then of course, um, that did not happen because everything shut down. And I have felt really bad for my artist and, and a lot of tattoo artists all over because, um, you know, they have not been able to work. They haven't been able to make money. Um, unlike some other kinds of industries, um, where you can kind of do like the like restaurants can do takeout and stuff. Like you can't really do that with a tattoo artist or a tattoo parlor. Um, at the same time, to be clear, like being safe is really important and it's not like for a long time, it was really not safe to be to be doing that kind of stuff. Um, I also felt bad for them because, you know, there are like, there were a lot of places, San Francisco included, where um, the the city and the region opened up indoor hair salon and stuff like that, bef- but didn't allow tattoo artists to operate Which is sort of a bummer because, I mean, good tattoo artists are very highly trained in, um, vector control and disease control and like safety and stuff like that. Um, often more so than someone who is a hairdresser, not always, but sometimes. Um, anyway, so all that is to say that I have a big tattoo appointment to finish my sleeve tomorrow and Thursday. So by the end of this week, and actually by the end of this month, because I have another one on the end of the month on on the 30th, October 30th, um by the end of this month, I will be done almost with that little sleeve. Um, And I'm excited to see my artist again. I'm excited that she's getting paid again and getting money again. Um, And uh, I'm excited to be, to be done with that. So those are my two little secrets. That's it. I hope you're having a great weekend and um, I will talk to you all soon. Bye.